0: Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. Last Saturday, a beautiful and historically significant Beaux-Arts Bank building was demolished before area residents realized that it was at immediate risk. I remember often driving or walking by that building on Young Street north of Eglinton, And frankly, I remember wondering just how long it was going to be there amid the increasing number of condo towers on that very expensive centrally located land. Well, unfortunately, I just got the answer. The fact is that commercial property owners don't have to go through the same process as residential developments before taking down something they own even if, as in this case, the 110-year-old building uh, was already one of the, C- the city's few remaining Beaux-Arts banks and had already been recognized as having historical value. It just hadn't yet been listed as a heritage site. So is this right? What do you think? The numbers 416 0, 740 toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. Uh, in the meantime, we are going to talk to Caitlin Wainwright, who's the director of programming at Heritage Toronto. Caitlin, welcome. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me, Libby. Okay. Well, a lot of people believe
1: that this is just a loophole that developers take advantage of
2: it comes down to a few different things and I think that we need to remember that for every example of uh, demolished heritage that we see there are literally dozens and dozens of examples of fantastic restoration and redevelopment and adaptive reuse that we see in this city and it seems almost like clockwork every January or February for the last several years, there has been a story where um, a developer has gone out and demolished unexpectedly a building. And I think that speaks to a, a few different things. One um, is the question that you raised out at the start, you know, should should developers be able to demolish commercial buildings without some sort of a plan for the future? Um and I, I think that's a question that, that policymakers really do need to be grappling with. Why is it that a residential homeowner, when they seek out a demolition permit, they have to say, okay, here's my plan. But um, for somebody who, you know, owns a property on a main street like Young Street, why, why is that not taken into account? Um, so there's, there's policy. There's also, I think, an issue of incentivizing heritage. So, how do we make it more desirable for developers to um, and and property owners to maintain and conserve the buildings that they have and to integrate them? Um, one thing I find very interesting and curious about this building um, up at Young and Roselawn is that there had been a proposal back in, yeah. in 2014. So there was a zoning bylaw amendment where the um, the previous developer said okay, I'm going to build a five-story commercial development, and I'm going to integrate the facade of the building into that development. Um, And then that application was was withdrawn for unknown reasons, and um, subsequently the owner requested a demolition permit sometime later, and that that was what was issued, which allowed this.
1: Uh-huh, um, and, but the building was sold in, in the meantime.
2: Yeah, yeah. So the building, the building had changed hands. Well, in the there interim. you go. Um, but at the same time, there's a third piece that I think also needs to be accounted for that we're hearing a lot of, of chatter about on social media, and that's a question of resources. Um, so with the growth of the city, you know, city, city staff are aware of these buildings. The, the community is aware of these buildings. The, the, it was identified in... Um, in the Young Eglinton Secondary Plan, but it hadn't made it to the point of being listed on the city's inventory of heritage properties, in large part because um, it's really, really difficult in a city that is growing as rapidly in Toronto uh, for you know city staff just simply don't have. Um, the resources that they need to respond.
1: Well, um, what? You, well, how long should ahead? a response take? That's the question. How? I mean, they, they were they've been looking at this uh, since 2014 at least. So, does why does it take over two years to to get from from one level and to get it officially listed?
2: Well, and I, I think that is a question of the number of different other priorities that are in place, right? So you have a number of new heritage conservation districts that are being assessed. So areas in other neighborhoods in the city, um, heritage is tackled at the city through a number of different Ways And sometimes that's by looking at an entire swath of a neighborhood, like the more southerly part of Young Street was done, and sometimes it's done by looking at um, individual properties or looking at the heritage within a secondary plan. Um, so I think really it just do- comes down to, um, you know, boots on the ground at the end of the day. And everybody is, is feeling um, like there aren't enough hours in the day to tackle all of the applications that are coming through. And that's where, again, there could be changes in policy that are uh, helping to mitigate that. Okay. Um,
1: Caitlin, thanks a lot for that. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Let's take a call from uh, Walter in Hamilton. Hello, Walter.
3: Hello. How are you doing?
1: Fine. How are you?
3: I'm fine. Thank you. Now, what I want to talk about is uh, that really hits me hard on that subject is the old Terrace Roller Skating Arena we used to have on Mutual Street. Now here's a prime historical building in Toronto. It started off as a Mutual uh, Arena way back in the 1930s, 40s, I believe, and 40s for sure. And then, and then um, when they built the, uh, the Maple Leaf Garden, they move in there, and uh, then the old Mutual Arena was turned to the Terrace Roller Skating Arena. We had some curling down on the main floor, bottom floor, uh, lower level. Then we had roller skating and ice skating in two different rinks on the upper floors. Right. Now all these beautiful, fun places like that, they were all gone. Like, that was a beautiful flavor of Toronto where you could go and skate or you could, you could curl, you could do good sport like that. You don't find that anymore. It's all gone. And uh, they never coming back. And there's a lot of examples I could give you, similar to this one, especially down on Yonge Street. And where can a roller skater go today? You know, and so many things like that is gone. It's taken over by condo developers, and I I just don't like the way the downtown Toronto is getting stale with condominium after condominium after condominium buildings, and we're losing a specific old flavor of the city. The mom-and-pop shops are disappearing, and it's getting more generic shops taking their places in those new buildings. Uh, I think we're losing something very precious, and I'm kind of disappointed. I am disappointed that nothing was done to try to save the old mutual arena, because the the pockets of uh, those uh, condo developers are so deep that uh, they seem to rule the roots, and it seems like we... We're falling victim to them, and it it's not a thing we can do to fight back.
1: Well, there probably is something we can do to fight back. Walter, thanks for your call.
3: Okay, thank you.
1: Bye-bye. Uh, let's go to Kristen Wong-Tam. Councillor Wong-Tam, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, so the case of this uh, bank building, we were just talking to Caitlin Wainwright, and she seemed to suggest that the problem was that there aren't enough staff dealing with this. Honestly, I... Uh, I I, don't—I find um,
4: that—I'm sure there's another (laughs) explanation— I, I would say it's a, it's a little bit more complicated that, and and, and Caitlin is not entirely wrong. Uh, the City of Toronto's uh, Planning Department uh, contains a division called Heritage Preservation Services, and and th- these staff people are tasked with evaluating individual uh, properties for their heritage uh, attributes, and then recommending a listing or designating them under the Ontario Heritage Act. Uh, they also work on heritage conservation districts that go beyond just the listing of one property, but rather uh the designation of a of a geographical neighborhood or an area and uh, and so in in some ways uh that those staff persons do have a lot on their plate uh the old city of toronto uh oftentimes has a lot of heritage attributes and buildings that are maybe not uh listed or designated but certainly do have heritage attributes that are worth considering but in this case, the case at uh, two forty four uh, for Yonge Street is uh, is actually um, uh, I think something else was a brew and, uh, and what we have here is a, is a property owner who has a non-residential property who applied for a demolition permit and under the uh, building code which is provincial statute uh, the city has to issue that permit uh, it's deemed as, as issued as of right uh, so there was nothing the city of Toronto could do uh, because it the chief building official was simply following uh, the provincial so, statue and doing uh, her job, and uh, and so unfortunately, um, you know, Caitlin is not uh, necessarily wrong about other matters, but in this case, it actually had a lot to do with the fact that this property was not going to be protected uh, because it, uh, uh, as of right provincially, the property owner can pull his. Uh, his uh, Uh, Demolition permit.
1: Okay, so is is the problem? A lot of people are saying this is a loophole. Why shouldn't a uh, a commercial property owner have to uh, meet the same standard as a as a residential property owner? And with that, I have to say it. It's not that hard for residential property owners to get
4: around that anyway. Uh, Is it a loophole that should be plugged? Uh, absolutely it should be plugged, and I think that the the heritage preservation staff at the city the planning staff I know City Council has uh, has at various times uh, taken positions on it Uh, there have been requests made to the province to close that loophole the province is aware that it's not just the city of Toronto that is struggling with that loophole but every municipality in Ontario has had some uh, version of this particular situation happen to them Uh, but when it comes to non-residential properties commercial properties uh, if an application for demolition permit is requested, that demolition permit is issued uh, by the ch- chief building official. Uh, the ch- she, in, in this case in the city of Toronto, does not have any, um, uh, any other option unless the demolition permit um, uh, request may contravene applicable law or policy. Uh, she just has to issue it, and that's exactly what she did in this case.
1: Uh, so, again, it's, it's a provincial law? It is
4: so. the The building code is is a, is a provincial uh, act, uh, and so is the Ontario Planning Act. Uh, but interestingly enough, under section 33 of the of the Provincial Planning Act, uh, demolition applications received on residential properties are subject to city council approval. So, therefore, City Council has an opportunity to scrutinize the application. And what we've done at the City of Toronto is say, unless there's a suitable uh, subject replacement property that's approved, you will not get your residential demolition application. So, the Planning Act allows City Councils, whether it's Toronto or Oshawa or or, or Ottawa, it allows us to respond locally. But it does not... Uh, give the same level of protection uh, to uh, non-residential properties, uh, such as commercial or industrial and properties. And have, I don't know why. Has this been raised with the province? Yes, it has been raised uh, with the province, and it's been raised with various governments, and it's been raised with various ministers over the years, as far as I can tell. And every single time, the spokesperson or the minister, uh, at, at, at various points in, 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 uh, in time, have said, you know, we, we defer this to the city but i would say there, that there's um there's a, there's there's some um uh, i 'm trying to use my my language carefully i 'm going to try to use my choose my words, but I would say they abdicate their responsibility it 's almost like they just completely turn a blind eye to it and they they say that it 's a city that needs to respond, but the city is following provincial statute, so all local go- orders of government are bound to to follow the um okay. uh, the requirements of the province so
1: it's it 's bureaucracy uh i mean if they say no, it 's your responsibility, will. why
4: doesn 't the city then just say Just say no. Well, we we can't just say no, and the and the chief building official is is bound by by the provincial statute there. Um, but I would say that it's actually political will. It's not bureaucracy because I think even the bureaucrats want to fix this because they they're 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 tired of of struggling with with the loophole. People are upset at them. Uh, they 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 turn around and throw up their hands and say, What can we do if the political masters at the province aren't willing to take any corrective action? Uh, and there have been times where the city of Toronto has forced the province to to respond. So, for example. The issue of, of falling glass, um, we had some emergency building code amendments that we wanted the province to make. The province took that up seriously, and they made those amendments. But they haven't put the same sense of urgency on this particular request, so it is um, up to them, and they do have an option to choose. And for the, the province to say it's, it's, it's the city's fault or the city uh, you know, has a responsibility to, to say no, we can't. Under their, under their provincial statute, the chief building official, within 10 to 30 days, must issue that permit if requested.
1: Okay, it sounds like a catch-22. Uh, we are rapidly running out of time here. I'm going to take one call quickly, hopefully, Susan in Newmarket. Hello, Susan. Hello, Louise. Um, No, just in listening to this, and I've seen this happen before with historical buildings, and it's, um, I think it's a matter of the right hand not talking to the left hand in whatever level of government. If those buildings have been keystroked into a database and flagged as historical locations, why aren't they coming up? When any kind of permit is requested for that location, well, well and then the conversation starts. Councilor Wong Tam just explained that that if an owner, if it's a commercial building and the owner wants to demolish it, the law says they have to get a permit to do that. But again, if it's flagged, a conversation gets started, well, and that would change the rules. Well, part, part of the issue was that if, if people knew this was coming, they could have raised a, a big fuss, but they didn't. They, the, the company asked for a permit. The company got a permit. Quiet and kaboom, literally.
4: Yeah. And Libby, okay. if, if, you, if you'd like me to step in, I can also answer that question. Okay, yes, quickly, because we've got to move on. Sure, I'm, I'm happy to do so. So the, the chief building official does not have any obligation because the statute doesn't force him or her to have that obligation to consult. So she just has to issue the, the, cons- the commercial demolition permit.
1: Okay. Well, um, thank you for clarifying that issue. Uh, people, if we care about this, then we have to bring it up with our, I guess, provincial representatives, because this sounds, this sounds, actually, it sounds silly. I have to say, this is between back and forth. According to that explanation, it sounds silly. Uh, thank you, Susan, for your call, and thank you, Councillor Wong Tam. Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio, heard weekdays from noon to 1. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio, heard weekdays from noon to 1. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio, heard weekdays from noon to 1. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads,